When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Francesca Sabande about big brands are watching you, marketing, social justice, and digital culture. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Uh, I should say, actually, welcome back. So this is um, a, a new book that picks up, I think, on some of the themes of your your previous work, but I guess really, you know, sort of extends and actually breaks a bit of, of, of new ground. Um, and the place to start, I think, is probably with a time and with a place as well. So the, the book begins with um, what are, I suppose, kind of personal reflections mm. um, on a particular moment and being in, in the United States at a particular moment. And I'm intrigued to know, um, I guess, kind of what inspired the book uh, to study uh, brands and social justice, particularly um, at the moment of Roe versus Wade being overturned in America. Yeah, thanks very much for that. I feel as though it was a combination of various factors. One of them was, as you spoke a bit about there, really thinking about how I could continue with, but also sort of shift some of the ways that I've been focusing on and researching the impacts of issues to do with injustice and inequality in relation to media and the marketplace very broadly defined. And something over the years that I've spent quite a bit of time focusing on has been questions to do with structural looking relations. So the notion of a systemic gaze um, and something that had really been at the forefront of some of my thoughts during the sort of months and, and the, the years leading up to starting to work on, on this book was how different desires within society and different expectations in relation to the idea of being seen or represented, how those desires and expectations are impacted by digital culture and also what I had or hadn't seen changing since the first academic journal article of mine was published um, on the topic of watching me, watching you, Black Women in Britain on YouTube. So sort of moving away from maybe more of an emphasis on how people experience forms of media in ways that invoke feelings of relatability and relationality and self-reflection. I was really wanting to 
deal with how people were staring back at different brands and institutions and actively turning away from and disengaging from them as part of their critical commentaries on issues to do with injustice and oppression. And if we take the example of that point in time in the US, I was very conscious of how some of the same brands that were making statements in relation to the overturning of Roe v. Wade were also seemingly making decisions or gestures within the workplace that point to how they might present themselves as invested in protecting the reproductive rights of individuals or addressing issues to do their reproductive justice, but we're also using this as an opportunity to really ramp up forms of monitoring and surveillance in relation to the health and well-being and bodies and lives of the people who work at those brands. So if I was to put that very briefly, I was thinking about who's watching and who's being watched and how that is impacted by the experiences of individuals and institutions and social and political issues that are contemporary but very much shaped by the history of, of, of the US and the UK and consumer culture as we know it. How did you go about uh, doing the analysis for the book? What, what were the kind of um, methods you, you were interested in, in using to, I guess, both unpack this um, almost kind of popular resistance to brands, but also to understand a bit about what was going on with people working for or, or working within the context of, of digital brands as well? Yeah, so... I feel as though in these situations, sometimes the response to that sort of question conveys a really strong sense of structure and a systematic approach and, and this sense of organisation. And the way I would perhaps describe elements of the methodological approach is with the term organised chaos. So I think I, re <laughs> I refer to it perhaps a little bit more um, concisely as a, as a sort of bricolage methodological approach, but it really brought together a combination of perhaps what might be viewed as more conventional research methods, such as research interviews with media marketing and digital practitioners and professionals in the UK and North America, um, along with studying materials in archives in Washington, D.C. And that really emerged at a point in time when archives that had been closed for many months, if not longer, during the COVID-19 pandemic were just starting to open up. So when I first began working on this book, I didn't know that it would necessarily be possible for me to access some of the archive materials that I did. Um, along with that, I was thinking a lot about media and pop culture portrayals that were part of my everyday media experiences and how I could sort of analyze them and reflect on them in a way that drew some connections between what I was encountering in the archives and what people were speaking about when reflecting on the dynamic between social justice and marketing media. And alongside that, I did a research survey of people in the UK and the US about their perceptions of these sorts of issues, including in relation to the contentious concept of woke washing. So it really was a mixture of different research methods and, and it also brought in some of my reflections from exhibitions, brand stores and spending time at the music festival when we were young in Las Vegas, where I was there both in my capacity as, as a fan and, and, and also with my um, questions that were very much at the root of the research. Yeah, I mean, hopefully we'll get to talk about um, the kind of... Um the co-option of emo and mm. uh, by by big big brands a, a bit later but for now i i, I want to pick up on on this term you you've used there which i think is really important 
throughout the book, which is this idea of of woke washing. And it, if, if I can be honest, like if I hear the W word, usually it's a bit of an alarm mm-hmm. bell. It's like, oh, this is going to be some terrible, like weird right wing like comment now. But the way you try and engage with it is is much more in the context of a longer history, I think, of how the term has been used, in particularly in, in the US context, and then to get to grips with how it might have been um, co-opted mm-hmm. later by uh, reactionary projects. So, so what, what is woke washing, and, and I guess kind of um, why is it important in the book? Um, yeah, it's tricky because I think as you were getting at with what you were saying there, I feel as though, you know, typically... Uh, at this point in time or early 2024 when the term woke or wokeness or woke washing or other derivatives are invoked it's often in this sort of pejorative sense and it can often very much sort of signify that the commentary that's to follow and the the article that might be attached to a headline with this term is going to be very much from a point of view that is um, reinforcing forms of inequality and oppression so I think when I'm reflecting on the notion of woke washing, what I'm doing is thinking critically about different examples of brands and various media marketing organisations trying to allude to issues related to inequality and injustice and social justice, but doing so in very surface level and arguably superficial ways. So there's often, let's say, a disconnect between this emphasis on who or what is represented in the content of a single advertising campaign and the reality of how that brand, the way they operate, the products and services that they produce or provide um, very much you know, is part of the, the forms of inequality and oppression that they're claiming to stand against and, and to try and address. I think whilst it's a term that I spent quite a bit of time looking at around about 2017, 2018, and it's still a term that I I reflect on, including in the context of this book, increasingly I am reflecting on it in a way that sort of pushes against the idea that this term in itself can, this term in itself tells us more about these issues than it does tell us about how language and and buzzwords and phrases become sort of sloganized and take on this trending quality that can actually result in the original intended me- meaning of a, an idea or concept shifting quite drastically and what i mean by that is when i first started to look at this term it really was to sort of analyze and critique the actions or inactions of brands but in the years since then, I feel as though this term has sort of morphed into the industry of so-called um, woke marketing. So these ideas about how brands can get it right, so to speak, and um, the sort of right and wrong way to allegedly engage in forms of woke marketing. And I think where the discourse is at now, again, tells us a lot more about sort of the the social and political factors that shape how terms and concepts are decontextualized and recontextualized as opposed to really telling us a lot about um, the sorts of issues of inequality and oppression that the notion of, of wokeness as rooted in black American culture and history and consciousness raising really deals with with such care and nuance. I mean a, a really good way to sort of bring this to life it is probably with some of the examples in in the second chapter and i, I was struck actually by, by the way that the book gets straight in to questions of morality and 
uh, dare I say it, kind of gross hypocrisy on the part of some brands. And then to pick out one um, that I, you know, I guess almost every listener might be familiar with is you use a, a sort of case study of Ben Jerry's ice cream. And I'm intrigued to know where both questions of um, morality play out, but also the example of kind of the distance maybe between Ben and Jerry's rhetoric mm. and then kind of reality of their corporate actions. Yeah, I think reflecting on some of the other examples that I look at alongside that, I know I speak a bit about an exhibition that was at the Museum of Brands a number of years ago now, and we were seeing sort of examples that connect to Ben and Jerry's and how they're positioned in the marketplace, sitting alongside examples that connect to brands such as Brewdog. And I feel as though beyond the fact that these different brands and how they do or don't comment on their social and political issues, and beyond the fact that these examples can tell us a lot about which issues are being viewed as, let's say, issues of the moment and which issues are treated as though they are part of what I refer to as single-use social justice. And um, when we look more deeply beyond what's being said right now and look at the history of, of a brand, that's when we start to get more of a sense of to what extent is this statement simply gestural in nature as opposed to connected to a, a track record of work that people might feel suggests there's something more meaningful going on. And I feel as though with an example like Ben and Jerry's, it's very easy for people to simplistically say, you know, they get it right, they 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 care, and they are set apart from all the other brands that that tend to try and sort of venture into issuing a statement or supporting an issue. But at the end of the day, even the concept of caring capitalism, which has been part of how Ben and Jerry's is portrayed, is a concept that is not beyond um, critique and, and critical examination. And I feel as though, for me, part of how I've tried to approach this book is moving beyond binary notions of so-called good or bad brands and um, to to really sort of move more towards what does it mean when we ask ourselves more about um, how is mor- morality made manifest in relation to the actions of not only brands as institutions but brands as self-brands and whose notion of morality is being applied when a brand is being reprimanded or enabled in relation to certain statements or certain actions and um, that they're undertaking this isn't just a corporate thing is it so later on in the second chapter you, you actually talk about nations as, mm. you know branding themselves and, and having brands and this runs quite kind of sweetly i thought from uh the story of basically people making puddings in, in the uk <laughs> um, a, a kind of almost like twee version mm. of, of nationalism through to the more uh I, I guess explicit forms of national celebration like the fourth of july mm. and and i'm intrigued to know I, I guess kind of how you move i suppose from where the traditional study of brands would, mm. would find itself which is in that kind of corporate setting to thinking about nations and then this question of morality in the context of nation brands yeah I, I feel as though that sort of that sort of movement is maybe partly informed by the fact that I, I i suppose i'm someone who's very much interested in questions to do with the idea of nation and national politics and in particular when we're dealing with the uk i, I tend to think about this in relation to um, devolved nations so the dynamics between you know scotland wales england and um, in, in particular but i say when it comes to brands for me especially because 
I was writing this during the COVID-19 pandemic and that was a point in time when ideas about being a so-called sort of good or dutiful citizen felt very much at the forefront of a lot of media and public um, discourse and rhetoric. Inevitably, I was asking myself a lot of questions that came back to how are ideas to do with um, nation, nationalism, perceived national duty how are they constructed and communicated in the form of advertising and marketing and media? And, you know, whether it was looking at the material in the archives that focused on the work of David Ogilvy and thinking about how the UK was marketed to the US in the 50s and 60s and vice versa, or coming across the content that is posted by influencers in response to the overturning of Roe v. Wade and, and seeing how sort of ideas to do with feminism were being struggled over and um, both with a focus on that and, and a focus on the framing of the 4th of July, I, I guess that movement came from the the way that nation and, and um, the identities of nation felt so central to a lot of the ways that COVID-19 ha- have essentially, um, has essentially been discussed and depicted. And yeah, I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of saying we're now in a post-COVID world, but COVID-19 and its impacts are very much still present. And I feel that one of the many places we see that is in the media marketing landscape today. I mean, it's, it's interesting talking about the kind of post uh, or indeed endemic COVID world, because while things uh, you get into the book, and actually I suppose it, it runs right throughout the book really, um, is uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. And Fascinatingly, you know, this is kind of concurrent to um, the sort of 2020 moment of, of COVID. And it's really interesting actually to juxtapose that with the way brands have, have, have acted. And again, in keeping with the book's desire to kind of complicate um, these moral yeah. questions, um, you, I think, chart the way that on the one hand, brands were incredibly cynical about Black Lives Matter, and you know this runs from individual influencers right the way through to corporate brands. But at the same time, there, there is this kind of promise, maybe, or possibility that activism could take place in the context of social media. Yeah. So, so what do you say about Black Lives Matter and and uh, the kind of branded response? And and you know, it, is it possible to kind of have, I suppose, a, a positive impact um, with, with activism? Yeah. So so. Some of the stuff that I ended up focusing on when addressing that included the different ways that we can't get away from the fact that social media and whether it is specific expressions of it, such as what's known as influencer culture or the creator economy, we can't get away from the fact that some of this is implicated in what might be known as activism or organising or different forms of perceived resistance. And I feel as though it's it's tricky because there are times when conversations to do with the role of social media or forms of um let's say digital content creation in activism there are times when these conversations happen in a way that sort of erases the history of different examples of community organizing and activism in previous decades and what i mean by that is when i'm focusing on let's say influencer culture and social media today i'm often thinking about the much longer history of celebrity culture and the cult of personality and the reality is within different social movements there have been so many examples of what we could 
refer to as being the celebrification of uh, an individual activist or, or certain express and expressions of, of organizing. And with that in mind, rather than approach this work in a way that simply involves stating there is no place for, you know, s- social media or even elements of influencer culture in social movements. Instead, I've tried to think through, well, what is the difference between, for example, influencer culture and activism colliding in potentially mutually beneficial ways at times, depending on what issue we're dealing with, of course, and the extent to which influencer culture in itself upholds values that may be at odds with that issue. Um, it, there are times when that, that, that I don't want to say partnership, but that sort of um, meeting is, is not always adversarial and oppositional. But we do still need to think really critically about what happens when a, a, a movement or a, an action is very quickly viewed as a brand. And I think the logics of branding, although they are definitely at the roots of a lot of influencer culture, that doesn't mean that absolutely every single thing that is said and done with the use of social media constitutes commodification, marketization, um, and branding. So yeah, it's, it's in some ways that's a response that's sort of messy in nature because we're dealing with with messy issues but it's my way of saying we can't always think about activism as being in one corner and digital culture as being in another but we need to be real about the commerce oriented nature of many of the platforms that are um at the center of what we we view as digital culture today we mentioned earlier the kind of range of methods that the book uses and and kind of in the in the middle of the book there's i guess the kind of classic bit of uh, cultural or media studies uh, textual analysis. So we pick out um, quite a few examples from, um, I guess, contemporary popular culture. Although thinking about the examples you use, that they're almost kind of like um, high-end version of, uh, of of popular culture. Um, for a couple of examples, that's funny. Uh, to to think today, in teaching, we were speaking all about high and low culture, and, and that distinction that we always come back to. <laughs> well, it, it, it's interesting because, like. Um, I keep promising you we're definitely going to talk about emo, um, which uh, but before that, like, so you use succession in industry and I guess they're kind of emblematic of what we call it. What What's the euphemism? Like quality television. Mm, yeah, prestige um, drama, um, all that. Yeah, ex- exactly mm-hmm. that, prestige drama. And how, I suppose, kind of, on, on the one hand, like, I mean, brands are all over those shows, mm-hmm. uh, including, you know, and this kind of comes up the idea of succession being a brand in the show mm. industry as as well but at the same time there are these i suppose moments of, of social justice mm. although they're kind of bleak and um you know quite quite constrained and i'm intrigued to know where um both the two shows fit in but but where this kind of moment of kind of textual analysis comes into the book as well so i think both for the show's fitting and that sort of moment of textual analysis, I, I feel as though it relates to, I was really interested in how experiences of the workplace were being depicted in pop culture at that point in time, especially when thinking again about both the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic and how many people's experiences of work drastically changed, whilst other people's experiences, um, you know, arguably didn't in some ways, but 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 their their health and well-being and safety was very much being sort of sacrificed to enable the comfort of others. And I feel as though that meant both 
looking at the sorts of shows that I was already watching, but also thinking about this potential body of pop culture portrayals of different work environments then. I, I feel as though, as we spoke a bit about earlier on, um, whether or not it is the use of terms such as, you know, the double pandemic is something that ha- is an expression that's been used or different statements that point to the fact that when we're speaking about issues to do with anti-blackness and we're speaking about COVID-19 and we're speaking about reproductive justice as well, we're dealing with issues that are interconnected. So we can think about the intersecting nature of oppression in relation to all of this. So with the different shows I ended up focusing on in the book, in particular, I was interested in how the experiences of people of colour in some cases and and certainly women of colour specifically were portrayed sometimes in ways that were connecting to contemporary ideas that relate to the notion of intersectionality but were often really sort of detached from how that has been conceptualized by scholars such as black feminists and legal theorist Kimberly Crenshaw. With Succession that was one that really felt as though these ideas to do with nation and and nationhood they really they came through strongly for me and they were in part shaped by my own experiences of living in Scotland including Dundee for around about five years and my fascination with some of the parallels I felt were coming through from what I was reading in the archives to do with some of David Ogilvy's work and how that was sort of narrativized and how we see the character of Logan Roy um, portrayed in that show so yeah a combination of my own personal interests and a lot of questions about work injustice and times of crisis on screen. Combination of your own personal interests sets up uh, the discussion of emo perfectly. <laughs> um, the first thing on that is uh, and any kind of fest in, in Vegas sounds really like unpleasantly hot. Um, mm. So I'm sort of interested in that. But the book, I think, is most interesting because basically the discussion of a music festival is really, I guess, a kind of critique of big tech mm. as much as it, as it is about um, the kind of festivalization of, of everyday life and, and your um, almost kind of ethnographic experiences. And I'm, I'm intrigued by two things. One is, I guess, how you sort of saw those two things come together in terms of thinking about tech companies and then this this particular uh, genre. And then the other thing is your experience um, of being a fan and being, I suppose, kind of at the sharp end of um, the intersection of branding and morality. Mm. So the big tech stuff, yeah, I've, I, I, you know, I know I'm... Many people have made these sorts of comments before about the the increasing role of big tech in music festivals and the um, perceived you know commodification of genres and scenes once deemed alternative or subcultural in nature. But again, I think partly because of the context we're dealing with, where a uh, return to some live events was relatively new at that point, and this festival in itself feels as though it is pretty different to some of what we've seen in relation to comparable festivals festivals with an emphasis on emo and or adjacent genres such as pop punk. It really, it felt as though I hadn't encountered a festival that had been marketed and branded in the way that When We Were Young was, um, including how its sort of rollout or emergence, certainly the iterations of it um, from sort of the 2021 period onwards, was 
so clearly tied to social media as the, the starting point for really getting the word out there. And something that I was interested in was the romanticization of 2000s and 2010s digital culture and experiences of the internet, including in the way that we were seeing the festival marketed in advance of it taking place, but then also at the festival itself, how we were seeing you know, new forms of digital technology and very recent trends being promoted and pushed um, through a focus on really sort of embracing the the the, the golden years or embracing um, a rose-tinted sense of nostalgia that harked back to an internet of times gone by whilst encouraging you, let's say, to perhaps make use of digital apps and social media platforms that definitely weren't around at that point in time. So as part of that, um, I've, I've also been looking at these sorts of questions um, with Janessa Williams, who's a fantastic writer and music industries lecturer. And we have been really thinking a lot about how, yeah, questions to do with identity, inequality, nostalgia and digital culture are not necessarily questions, but more um, the the ways that identity inequality nostalgia and digital culture is part and parcel of what we are seeing and um, in relation to these sorts of events and the emergence of, of other similar festivals and i feel as though something that is a part of all of this is often a whitewashing of the reality of how these scenes and genres have been experienced by people from different demographics in the previous decades that the the festivals make a nod to now as well as in the present day so there can be these interesting sometimes arguably revisionist accounts of who and what constitutes these genres and scenes and um, whilst trying to allude to sort of a, a newness and um, a renaissance a resurgence of something in a way that is still overlooking the changes today that have occurred i mean that question i guess of the you know you mentioned lots of people have pointed these these things yeah. out i think one of the thing the book is kind of most powerful at is both bringing together various of these um, research literatures you're drawing on, but really kind of bringing them right up to date. And and, and the way the book kind of closes actually is, is a really great example of that. So one of the things you, you sort of speculate on is um, digital futures, really, and, and particularly the impact of AI. And I'm intrigued really to know what sort of um, longer-term lessons the book um, has particularly in the context of what seems to be a kind of very changing context for digital uh, branding and marketing, whilst at the same time, these old kind of issues of power inequality um, are still with us. Mm, small question to wrap things up. <laughs> um, yeah, one thing that comes to mind, although I'd say, you know, the book, the book certainly doesn't predominantly focus on AI and um, but the, there there are definitely particularly when I'm dealing with you know the rise of computer generated CGI um, or virtual influencers and also AI influencers I, I sort of delve into some of this but I suppose I'm thinking through um, how I speak a bit of, about both the personification of virtual influencers and maybe uh, a move away from how they are voiced and constructed as these sort of individuals themselves and more of a move towards them serving perhaps more so of a decorative function. Um, but I, I, I say all of that because on the topic of AI, I do feel as though we're going to see more and more examples of individuals and institutions trying to attribute certain 
you know, immoral or amoral actions to AI in a way that can really reinforce pervasive media and public narratives that mistakenly, you know, frame AI as existing in ways that are detached from the input and ideas and decisions and actions of people. So essentially, I feel as though we're going to see more examples of people trying to blame AI to distance people from a sense of responsibility and accountability. And maybe on the topic of you know a festival and um, such as when we were young or really the the ways we're seeing ideas to do with emo play out in pop culture right now i think we're just at the beginning of, of of a shift with regards to some of that and i know i spoke a little bit about the whitewashing of certain narratives earlier on and i was really focusing mainly on big tech there and sort of you know romantic notions of the internet and and who it was or wasn't safe or fun or freeing for in the past but more than that we are seeing a lot of um, brilliant work and discussion that focuses on the experiences of black folks in you know subcultures genres and deemed alternative and i feel as though we're going to see you know more vital work that really addresses the often underexplored intersecting race class and gender dimensions um, of these different spaces and i mean it strikes me that there's the opportunity for more uh brilliant work from from, from you and, and this book is um as much a kind of um an agenda setting text as it is uh a book um that has a kind of complete sense of analysis so so where next for you are you thinking ai work you mentioned doing uh, more work on uh on the music industry working with with music scholars uh there's this ongoing you know kind of question of um, as you say, you know the sort of um, future, particularly as it um, intersects with, with questions of racial mm-hmm. inequality. So, what's your uh, sort of next project going to be? Yeah, <laughs> lots of different ideas percolating, but especially sitting with this stuff to do with music, the internet, and um, notions of alternativeness. And with a focus on how black digital culture and cultural memory is part of all that.